Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. Welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined as always by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Raylia Liu, CREI Fertility Specialist. Welcome, Raylia. Welcome, Geordie. It's nice to be back. We've had a bit of a break, but we're back. We're recording a few episodes today, and we're starting with PRP. What does PRP stand for? PRP is a product made from blood. It stands for platelet-rich plasma. And it is a product that we're discovering lots of applications for in medicine. Geordie, you mentioned earlier you'd heard of it in the cosmetic field. Yes, vampire facials. So this is what I know. They take some of your blood, they spin it around, and then they put it on your face. PRP is considered a bit of a miracle product and it's had lots of applications throughout medicine actually. Some people have had it injected perhaps into a joint um, or a tendon. It's really a product that has lots and, and lots of lovely growth factors and the idea for using it in the endometrium, particularly for women who've had a thin endometrium or a damaged endometrium, and who have also suffered recurrent implantation failure or infertility relating to the endometrium, we think. By bathing the endometrium in growth factors, it can potentially improve the thickness of the endometrium. Also, studies have shown improved pregnancy rates in these women using PRP. Now, this is something that you offer at Women's Health Melbourne, but it's not for everyone. How do you discern who it's right for? I guess it comes back to talking about, well, why doesn't every embryo transfer in an IVF context work? And there are lots of different reasons. Sometimes it's just the wrong embryo, that a particular embryo either couldn't make a baby because it had a DNA error, we don't always test so we don't always know, or an embryo that had the right information manual made a terrible mistake in embryo development that had nothing to do with the environment. So a challenge in IVF is the very best embryo can fail due to purely embryonic reasons that are either innate or acquired as that embryo develops. And we know that at best, in someone who's really young and really fertile, only one in two embryos that looks terrific in the lab is going to actually make a baby. And as women get older, that actually goes down quite a lot so that when you're, say, over 40, it's going to be more like one in five embryos that can make a baby. Over 42, more like one in 10 embryos that can make a baby. That's a really big challenge as a fertility doctor because you can be doing everything you can as perfectly as possible and a patient may not get pregnant in a particular cycle. 
and and it's really human nature to try and improve elements that we can improve upon when so much is outside of our control. However, there is a subset of patients who have beautiful embryos that don't implant. And in that context, we may even have genetically tested the embryos and know that they are majority normal. In those cases, we have to look at the environment of implantation. And we know that endometrial quality and also what we call endometrial synchrony, which means the embryo speaking the same language as the endometrium, them being in, in synchrony or in harmony with each other, is so critical for successful implantation. So what we know about PRP, and I guess what we know about the endometrium itself, is the endometrium is a tissue that sheds and regrows every single cycle. And it regrows from a layer of stem cells called the basalis layer that is susceptible to the influence of growth factors. So enter PRP. So PRP is derived from platelets in the blood. As you mentioned, we draw blood from the patient so it's their own blood. And what we do is we process that blood to derive the growth factors from the platelets themselves. And we can infuse this PRP solution into the uterus. When I do it in my clinic, I use the same type of equipment that I use to do an embryo transfer. So it's very gentle, it's pain-free, it's not particularly invasive, and it's not really something that could cause harm. So it's, it's a very safe intervention, a very low-risk intervention. And what we're actually doing is infusing this concentrated mix of growth factors and also cytokines into the endometrium at its refractory stage, at its pre-growth spurt stage in your cycle. And what we want to do is to create a milieu of really stimulatory factors that help the lining to optimally grow. So some of the growth factors that we know of in PRP are called platelet-derived growth factors, transforming growth factors. There are various different types of growth factors called interleukins. There's a growth factor called vascular endothelial growth factor, another called epidermal growth factor, and there's also another called insulin-like growth factor. So it's really rich in these growth factors, and there's more than 20 different growth factors that we know of in PRP that can theoretically improve endometrial growth and better still the studies that we are seeing come into the medical literature about PRP have shown that in a subset of women who have had previous cycles where they've had demonstrated thin endometrium we've seen not only a thickening of the endometrium using PRP but happily we've also seen an improved pregnancy rate in these selected women. So we know in the right group of people, PRP is super helpful. We also know that there's other indications for PRP. So one of them, which is really exciting, has been for women who've had a damage to the lining causing thin endometrium because of that damage. Examples are on the spectrum of a condition known as Asherman syndrome. So Asherman syndrome is where there's scarring inside the uterus and adhesion formation. So scar tissue and, and bands of scar tissue that make 
the layers of the lining stick together to form adhesions. This can happen after surgery, such as a DNC. It can also happen after infections that can occur through STIs or also sexually transmitted infections or also infections called endometritis that can happen after giving birth or after having a retained placenta, uh, having had a baby. And what's really exciting is in studies that have shown when doctors physically diagnose and divide adhesions, PRP can be used to prevent adhesions forming again and to improve a woman's chance of regenerating a healthy endometrial lining. And how long does it last after you do the procedure? Because the procedure itself, the patient comes in, her blood's taken, we send her away for a walk for half an hour or so, and then she comes back and you insert the platelet-rich plasma. How long does this take to work and how long does, do the effects last? Whenever we're treating a patient in an IVF context, it's with the ambition of helping her to become pregnant. And when we grow a lining in a given month, that lining serves a purpose. And if she conceives, it then becomes the bedrock of the placenta. And if she doesn't conceive, that lining sheds. And in the next cycle, a new lining will be required to have another chance at implantation and establishment of a successful pregnancy. So really the benefit of PRP is for that given attempt and for that given cycle when you're using it to thicken the lining for an embryo transfer. And the time that we recommend doing the PRP is as that cycle's lining is establishing itself. So just after the menstrual period, once the old lining is shed and once the new lining has started to grow. So for women using PRP in treatment, it's once a cycle and there have been a few studies looking at using two infusions in the same cycle. And that's something we need more data on. So certainly watch this space. Yeah, I've seen there's a note on the reception desk saying PRP between days seven and nine, I think it says. I think what's interesting is twice now you've referenced um, the data and the research that's been done. Certainly with IVF, there's a lot of people trying all sorts of things to get the positive result of getting pregnant. But PRP... We started recently-ish in the last couple of years and it's because you've seen some data and some research done on it. Yeah, definitely. So PRP used in an IVF context was first reported in 2015 by Chang and their group and they demonstrated it to be effective in treating both recurrent implantation failure and thin endometrium in several studies and there have been several studies since that have been repeated that have had the same results. So we're pretty confident in the world of assisted reproduction that PRP is not harmful and that for a subset of women it can be potentially helpful in improving pregnancy rates. It's not an invasive therapy so it doesn't require an operation or an anaesthetic. There are no significant risks of the therapy um, we're drawing the blood and infusing it very soon afterwards. So we're not really worried about inducing infection or anything like that from giving the PRP. So it's a very low risk therapy. And in IVF, when therapies are low risk and they're evidence-based and they're fairly positive in terms of the potential benefit, uh, then 
early adoption is a very reasonable standpoint. It, it's different if a therapy can potentially do harm. If a therapy could potentially do harm, you know, it sometimes takes a lot longer from when a therapy is conceived to when it's actually rolled out in the IVF world, and rightly so, because you know, our mantra as doctors is first do no harm. And there have been therapies over the years that have been thought to have been potentially of benefit, but then as the data has rolled out, they've either been dismissed as being of little benefit or no benefit. An interesting thing about PRP is how it's been studied across different areas of medicine. And no doubt there is a very good theoretical basis as to why it might be helpful. And that's what we've observed in studies so far in IVF. Are there any side effects to PRP? Only the fact that you have to have a blood test to take the PRP, to take the, I guess, the building blocks of the PRP. So um, obviously you have a little pinpoint prick in in the vein to take the blood in the first place. Uh, Not really, no. There's really no side effects of, of using PRP. What we know is that from studies done over many years, well before the use of growth factors in the endometrium like those derived from PRP, we know that having a thinner endometrium is associated with a lower chance of pregnancy. And the magic number's always been thought to be seven millimetres, that having an endometrium of more than seven millimetres is correlated with a better chance of an embryo implanting and more than 10 millimetres even more so. So really, women who have, despite watching the lining grow for several weeks, an endometrial thickness that is you know, five millimetres, six millimetres, or even less, are the subgroup that we hope might benefit from PRP. Obviously, this group are also needing to be investigated to check for adhesions because that can be a reason for the endometrium appearing thin on a scan. So it's important, especially in women who've had embryos fail, to have a look inside the uterus with a camera and check it out. And just make sure there's no issues because sometimes what can happen is that a woman might have had treatment for a while and she might have, in her quest to have a baby, had a few procedures like DNCs for miscarriages. And sometimes you can form an adhesion band inside the uterus and sometimes it's not easily seen on on a normal ultrasound. So having a look with a saline sonohistogram or with a hysteroscope is a good idea for a patient who's had unexplained implantation failure, especially if she's been noted to have a persistently thin endometrium. So what you're saying is in terms of scarring, it's exactly like on the face when you're using the derma roller with the PRP to smooth the texture of the face. This is doing the same to the scar tissue in the uterus. It's breaking it down. No, not really. <laughs> so when I've been looking online for just information on PRP because it's interesting. I noticed one of the questions that kept coming up was, can PRP improve AMH? Now, from my knowledge of the podcast, that's impossible. It's actually interesting that you asked that question because it's looking at a different application of PRP. So what we've been talking about so far is infusing the uterus, the womb, with growth factors to try and grow a better lining. It's I use the analogy of fertiliser on a lawn to try and improve you know, the quality of the lawn and the thickness of the lawn. When we treat women who have a very low egg count or women who have premature ovarian failure or just on-time ovarian failure, which you know, we, we don't call ovarian failure premature if it happens over 40. So if you or I had ovarian failure, it would be called normal spectrum 
you know, early but normal onset of menopause. But we do know that, you know, many women are still trying to have babies pushing the boundaries in their 40s. And so it's one of these things that in IVF, you know, we always say you can't stimulate a follicle if it isn't there. You can't collect an egg if it isn't there. And there will be women who are either poor responders to IVF treatment or who just don't have many eggs and just won't get many eggs ever or might not even have a cycle anymore because they're in menopause. One of the proposed uses of PRP that's been thought of but not proven uh, is to think about whether injecting PRP into the ovary might be of benefit to try and improve the number of follicles or eggs that could be responsive in an IVF context. That's something that has been done around the world but really the evidence for it is, is really poor right now. There's no great evidence of any benefit and unlike using PRP to infuse inside the lining which is basically putting the growth factors into the endometrial cavity through a natural aperture, through a natural opening of the cervix, in order to inject PRP into the ovary itself, you have to have a laparoscopy, which is a keyhole surgery, quite invasive, requiring a general anaesthetic. And coming back to our principle of first do no harm, potentially you could in that circumstances or in that circumstance cause damage to the ovary or you could cause bleeding from the ovary that was serious by injecting PRP directly into the ovary. So it's a very different idea. It's one that doesn't have evidence yet. I'm not completely close-minded to it, but I think that the chance of that making a real and tangible difference to a woman in the circumstances we've described is pretty low. One thing we have to be concerned about in IVF is that really our patients are quite vulnerable. They really want to have a baby very, very badly, sometimes with a very poor prognosis. There are patients out there in IVF who unfortunately, despite all their best efforts and the best efforts of their doctors, will not be successful, or at least will not be successful with their own egg. And on their way to coming to a realisation about that, there are women who are willing to try everything or anything. And I guess one of the duties of care as a doctor that we have is not to take advantage of those women by offering them treatments that are unproven or unsafe. Because at the end of the day, our job is to help you have a baby. And if what we're doing is not likely to benefit you in that way, then, you know, we have to be very careful about what we do. And, you know, I, I quite often see in my line of work as a subspecialist in reproductive endocrinology, patients who've seen multiple doctors before they've seen me. But one thing that I often do say is that while seeking different opinions and also seeking, I guess, innovative thought processes and personalised care is certainly a very valuable thing to do, I also say that patients take their pathology with them wherever they go. So if a patient has a very poor prognosis and they've been to see a very good doctor, it can help them reach a conclusion they need to reach sometimes by seeing another person and having another perspective, but their prognosis is not going to improve with their new specialist if they have a very poor prognosis. And their vulnerability can sometimes increase with a new specialist because they're willing to try anything. So one thing I say about PRP injecting it into the ovary, there's no physiological basis of how that might improve egg count or AMH that we know of. It's not something that I would do in my practice at this time point. I'm willing to be proven wrong in the future if more evidence comes to 
the surface, whereas using PRP and using growth factors on the endometrium, which is a tissue that is known to regenerate and does regenerate every single month to improve that regeneration process, which not only exists, but it's critical to implantation. Well, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Regeneration in the ovary is very different. Our ovaries make all the eggs we're ever going to make before birth. It's not natural or normal for the ovary to make new eggs after that. So it's harder to see how injecting growth factors into the ovary is going to be helpful. You said earlier about how the PRP process is done in the second week of a woman's cycle. And I'm, I'm guessing that the embryo, tra- embryo transfer is done in that same cycle. If it doesn't work that cycle, would you need to do PRP the next cycle? Yeah, exactly. So the benefit of PRP is to assist in the regeneration of the lining. And once you have an embryo transfer, if you don't get pregnant, you will shed that lining. And in the next month, we'll need to grow a new lining. And the benefit of the PRP would be required to be repeated in that cycle to potentially have the benefit. Now, using my analogy of a lawn and regrowth, actually, there probably is some sequential benefit from PRP in a previous cycle because the condition of what we call the basalis layer, the base stem, stem cell-based layer of the endometrium, potentially could have cumulative benefits over multiple treatments over time. But for the benefit of the lining in a given cycle, all the studies that have been looked at have looked at treatment in that cycle. If PRP is something a patient wants to try, should they bring it up with their specialist? Yeah, look, I I think it is because I don't think it is a therapy that has the potential to do harm and it has the potential to potentially help somebody. If you've had thin endometrium and you would like to try PRP and of course that's relative some people might dream of 10 millimeter endometrium but usually get an 8 millimeter endometrium I wouldn't say that that at all fit what the medical definition of thin endometrium is but if a woman has a recurrent thin endometrium she's been investigated to make sure there's nothing sinister and like adhesions that needs physical treatment then PRP is terrific and I've had now many babies in my practice having used PRP in women who've had previously implantation failure and I'm a believer. I think it's useful. I think it's helpful. I think the theoretical basis behind it makes sense. It's not too invasive. I don't think it can do harm and I see the potential for good. So I'm generally very supportive if a patient is interested to explore PRP in the context of IVF treatment in recurrent implantation failure. Thank you so much, Raylia. Thanks, Jordi. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Listener.